0: Welcome back to another Sound Truth interview. I'm your host, Adam Miller, and today we're honored to be joined by Dr. Gary Chapman, who you would know from his many books written on uh, his New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages, a great resource, one that's benefited me and my family in a, a great deal, and one I'm sure that many of our listeners already know about. But we're joined today to talk to Dr. Chapman about his own life, his own experiences in his most recent book called Life Lessons and Love Languages. Uh, Gary, it is a true privilege to be talking to you today. Thank you for being a part of the many voices for that one message.
1: Well, thank you, Adam. It's good to be with you today.
0: Why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit for our listeners who may not know, the very few of them who may not know, but a refresher for those who do, uh, as the author of The Five Love Languages, tell us a little bit about the sort of formation of that and, and how it kind of puts you into a, a stage from a small town.
1: You know, uh, actually, Adam, that grew out of my counseling experience. Uh, never forget the first time I encountered the reality that what makes one person feel loved doesn't make another person feel loved. The wife was complaining that she didn't feel loved by her husband. And he said, I don't understand that. I do everything I can to show her that I love her. And I said, Well, what do you do? He said, Well, I get home from work before she does. So I start the evening meal. And after the meal, he said, I wash the dishes. And Thursday night, I'm back in the floor. Every Saturday, I wash the car, I mow the grass, I help her with the laundry. You know, and he just went on and on and on. I was beginning to wonder, what does this woman do? You know, it <laughs> sounded to me like he was doing everything. And he said, I do all of that. And she says she doesn't feel love. He said, I don't know what else to do. Looked back at her and she started crying. And she said, Dr. Chapman, he's right. He's a hardworking man. But we don't ever talk. We haven't talked in 20 years. She said, he's always mowing the grass, washing the dishes, vacuuming the floor, and always doing something. (laughs) And I realized, you know, he was sincere and he wasn't connecting with her emotionally. And after that, I heard similar stories over and over in my office. And I knew there had to be a pattern to what I was hearing. So eventually I just sat down and read several years of notes that I made and asked myself, when someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, What did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. And I later called them the five love languages and started using that concept. You know, if you want her to feel love, you got to speak her language. If you want him to feel love, you got to learn to speak his language. And I would help couples discover their language, challenge them to go home and try it. And sometimes, Adam, they would come back in three weeks and say, Gary, this is changing everything. The whole climate's different now. Hmm. So that's where it came from, and eventually I decided if I could put this in a book, maybe I could help people I would never have time to see in my office. So yeah. that's what motivated me to write the book.
0: Well, that's it certainly has helped a lot of people, not just in marriage, but in parenting, in families, in church relationships. I mean, it crosses just about every relationship that you can imagine, and this came out of your not just your counseling ministry, but also your upbringing. I mean, you had to have a good foundation where you learned a lot of these components about relationships from, from your early life.
1: Well, I had a secure home growing up, you know, and I was also involved in the church. My mom and dad were strong Christians. We were at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. <laughs> I was involved in the children's program, in the youth program. Uh, you know, so one of the lessons I learned Uh, along the way, looking back on it, is uh, how important it is for children to have a secure home, and obviously a great advantage to have parents who are Christians and who expose you to Christian truth and to other people who are Christians. So I'm deeply indebted to my parents and my local church, the one in which I grew up, uh, which leads me to say to those who are leading churches, few things are more important Than children's ministry and youth ministry in terms of impacting young people. If we can get them, if we can help, if we can help them come to know Christ and have a relationship with him and before they go off to college, they're far more likely to survive. What happens? What happens? They're far more likely. They're far more likely to survive. What happens after
0: that? Mm. How much did that, those early years play into the, the role of your, your life in ministry? Obviously, you had a positive experience in church. Not everyone had a positive experience in church, and some people that had, even they kind of strayed away, but this kind of still captured, that must have been a keystone for your life, your ministry, and uh, basically the trajectory of your career.
1: Well, that's true. By the time I was 17 and a senior in high school, I really sensed that God wanted me in some kind of full-time ministry. And in those years, I only knew you could do two things full-time. You could be a pastor or you could be a missionary. And in my mind, missionaries lived in the jungles, and I didn't like snakes. (laughs) So I figured God wants me to be a pastor. So when I ended up going to Moody Bible Institute, I took what they call the pastor's course. you know. And in in those years, Moody was just a three-year school. It was an institute. And so they were just preparing pastors. So that's what I took. But by the time I got through Moody, I really sensed God wanted me to be a missionary. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, obviously, in those early years of my life, for me to come to that conclusion at the age of 17 that God wanted me into full-time ministry, it was a, it, it grew out of all that had happened before that.
0: Mm. Your schooling, your, your training, you talk about this and the influences of your education, um, you, you're your insight into Moody and your further training down the road, all of those different stages in different schools, they, they played a different role in your life.
1: They did. You know, I, I kept going to school. I went to Moody, and then I went to Wheaton and got my degree, and I majored in anthropology, cultural anthropology, which is a great background if you're going to be a missionary, studying cultures around the world. And, of course, then I went on to seminary and did a master's and a Ph.D., and, and then later on I did another master's in anthropology <laughs> That was in my ministry once I began working on a college campus. But, uh, you know, I think a couple of things that really came out of my educational ministry. uh, One is that uh, when I I sometimes say this jokingly, when I got to Moody Bible Institute, it's the first time I realized there were Christians who were not Baptists. okay? (laughs) (laughs) I I grew up in the South. I thought everybody was a Baptist. (laughs) Uh, But the other thing I learned is that You know, when you're in education, whether it's undergrad or graduate school, you learn not only in the classroom, you learn outside the classroom. And I remember at Moody working on Sunday afternoons in in the inner city of Chicago and gathering together young African-American children for an afternoon Sunday school, uh, which had a tremendous impact on them and a tremendous impact on me. I had many other experiences like that. Uh, But I also learned that uh, if we, if we're engaging people outside the classroom, we, we can learn from them. I remember I was just talking to the postmaster once and, uh, the, the name of Billy Graham came up and he said, you know what? I pray for Billy Graham every day. I said, what's that? He said, I pray that God will keep his heart. And I, I heard what he was saying. I mean, and I thought, man, I need to pray that for myself. You know, God will keep my heart because out of the heart, the Bible says everything else flows. And, uh, you know, we've seen so many Christians who seem to do well, and then they do things that just discourage everybody. And I I just started praying that for myself. Lord, keep my heart, keep my heart, that I I will see things your way and and do things your way. Uh, That had a tremendous impact. Just one conversation with one person, uh, you know, emphasized that in my heart and in my mind. So, yeah, we learn in the classroom and we learn out of the classroom if we're open to learning.
0: I I want to touch on that point because I think it's really important and it's crucial, I think, to your story is you being open to wherever God would lead you. You started college thinking you're going to go into pastoral ministry, then you started thinking you're going to be a missionary, you studied anthropology as a, a way to be a missionary, but all of those were steps that God was leading you down for a different ministry that really led into that, which really informed that ministry, but that was not the ministry God had prepared for you. So... But your willingness to be open and to say yes to whatever the Lord was leading you to was what put you in the position that you had such an influence.
1: Well, you're right. You know, uh, if you had asked me when I finished college, uh, what are you going to do? I would have said I'm going to be a missionary. Uh, And that summer, I had a tremendous lesson outside the classroom. I went to Colorado Springs to the summer training program with the Navigators, a Christian group. And uh, that involved... Uh, working on the complex. Everybody had an eight hour job. And we also had a weekly mentor that met with us and a weekly Bible study with a small group. And then we could attend the conferences that were being held there. It was a great opportunity. But they assigned me to work in the print shop and to run a folder, a huge folder that would take large pieces of paper and bring them down to little small booklets. And so they explained to me how it worked. And, you know, I just finished college and I kind of had the idea, well, I I can do anything. Just show me what to do. You know, (laughs) and they did. And I worked all day and I couldn't get that folder to work. I mean, I couldn't get it to come out right. And so the next day they gave me another lesson. And I thought, okay, I got got it now. I think I can do this. And I worked all day and I couldn't get it to work. (laughs) And this went on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four days. On Friday morning, I was having my time with God, and I was sitting outside on a rock, a huge rock, and I came to John 15, verse 5, which Jesus said, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You stay connected to me, you bear fruit. And then then these words, without me, you can do nothing. Mm -hmm. And I literally broke down and wept. And I said, God, I can't even run a dumb folder without you. (laughs) And when I finished weeping, I finally said to God, I'm asking you to show me how to run this folder Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because I can't do it without you. And I went in, and that folder almost ran itself, you know, all summer long. I didn't have any more problems. It was a huge lesson, and I'm glad I learned it early in my career rather than later, that without God, we really cannot accomplish his purposes. But with God, of course, we can accomplish everything that God has in mind for us.
0: I, I had a similar experience early on in uh, when I was 21, a very humbling experience. And as I've dealt with ministers, as you have as well, you, you can see these men who have gone on to do great things for the kingdom of God have had that humbling experience in their life, uh, where they've learned, you know, we bring a lot of expectations. Uh, when talking about love languages, we bring them to our marriage, but we also bring them to our relationship with God. And then we have to learn that uh, God's... God's standards and expectations and his, his plans are very different than our own, and we have to get on, on, on track with Him as opposed to the other way around.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. So, you know, I followed up uh, after college and went on to seminary, and after I finished my master's degree at seminary, I talked to the mission board uh, and expressed my interest in the teaching in, in another country because my, my vision at that time was if you want to reach a nation for God, train nationals and let them reach out to their own people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was a seminary in Africa, in Nigeria, that I, I had heard about, and I thought it would be a perfect place to do what I really feel like God wants me to do. And so uh, the mission board said, well, you know, if you're going to teach in a seminary, it would be ideal if you had the Ph.D. So you could either go get it now, or you could, you know, we could stretch it out over a few years. And when you come home for a year at a time, you could get it. And my wife and I talked, and by that time, we had one child, and we thought, you know, the easiest thing would be just to go back to seminary now and get it. And so we did. Went back, and for three years, I worked and got the PhD degree, and then we officially applied to the mission board. And when we did, we got turned down (laughs) because of my wife's health. They Mm. said, we can't send her to Africa. Mm. And she didn't think she had that many problems, and I didn't think she was that bad, and we had a hard time understanding the mission board. And then we kind of questioned God. I mean, what's the deal here? I mean, you let us to do this and now you're closing the door. And, and it was a time of real struggle for us. Uh, so I thought, well, if I'm not going to teach in another country, maybe I should teach here. So I applied to 27 colleges and there was no openings. Mm. And uh, then I thought, man, <laughs> what am I going to do now? <laughs> And there was a small Bible college uh, in North Carolina, uh, and I applied to them, and they they were looking for someone. So I taught there for three years, and I loved teaching, but I found out I didn't really like all the academic stuff, you know, preparing exams and grading exams and reading papers. And I just wanted to work with kids, you know. (laughs) And so uh, a town, a church on the other side of town asked if I'd be open to coming and starting a college ministry for them. I thought, man, I can work with college students and I don't have to do all this stuff, you know? And so I did. And we started the ministry at Wake Forest University, which was in our city. And uh, we started small Bible studies, started with one, went up to 24 different Bible studies with students leading them. And I was just meeting with students. And, and uh, then uh, 10 years, every Friday night, we had college students in our house. Every Sunday morning, I taught a college class. I mean, I loved that, you know? And, uh, in fact, my first book grew out of that. It was called Toward a Growing Marriage because every year I'd take three months on Sunday morning and teach preparation for marriage because I said to the students, the time to prepare for marriage is not after you get engaged. Prepare now. Learn something now. And uh, then the pastor asked me if I would do a, a single adult ministry. And I was reluctant because I love the college students, but I did it. And, uh, and I found out a lot of the singles who came were single again. They were going through separation and divorce. And my second book came out of that ministry. Uh, It was called Hope for the Separated, Wounded Marriages Can Be Healed. Uh, The new title of that is One More Try, What to Do When Your Marriage is Falling Apart. Mm -hmm. And Five Love Languages is my third book. But anyway, what happened is I continued to write. Uh, I never, ever saw myself as a writer but when the love languages took off, which is now has sold over 20 million copies and been translated in 50 some languages around the world. And when they would send us these books from, from other countries, Carolyn, I would pray over them and pray that God would use the book in that country. And one night I was opening up those, some books and I looked over on the couch and she was crying and I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, nothing's wrong. I just remember we wanted to be missionaries and now your books are all over the world and i thought oh (laughs) now i get it (laughs) you know god's plans were different from my plans and much bigger than my plans and i was reminded of that verse in the proverb that says a man plans his steps uh, plans his life but god orders his steps and so You know, uh, God doesn't always lead us the way we think He's leading us, but if He closes the door, there's a reason for it, and He will redirect you into what is His plan for your life.
0: Mm. You mentioned your your wife, and as well as talking about uh, college students and young adults and, and marriage. How did your marriage affect your life and your ministry?
1: Well, you know, one of the things I learned rather quickly after I got married, that Christians are not exempt from marital struggles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we were, I was 23, she was 22, you know, and uh, I was a Christian. She was a Christian. And I was in love and she was in love and I, I just thought everything was going to be wonderful, but I didn't know that the in love experience has a two year lifespan <laughs> average. And we come down off that high and I didn't realize that we would have conflicts. I mean, cause when you're in love, you don't think you'll have any conflicts. And we didn't know anything about solving conflicts. So we ended up arguing because I knew I was right. (laughs) She knew she was right. And, uh, and not only did I lose the positive feelings, now I had negative feelings toward her. And, uh, you know, all the things my mother told me about her before we got married were true. (laughs) And I'm sure whatever her mother told me, told her about me was true. And we, we really had a hard time. And I remember really, I was pretty desperate. And I was just saying, God, I cannot get up and preach and talk to people and and all that and be this miserable in, in a marriage. And I don't, I don't know what else to do. And when I prayed that prayer, immediately there came to my mind, a visual image of Jesus on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. And I heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You do not have the attitude of Christ toward her. And I remember what Jesus said when he stood up after he washed their feet, he said, you call me leader and teacher, and you're right. But in my kingdom, this is the way you lead. The leader serves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It hit me like a ton of bricks, Adam, because I knew that was not my attitude. My attitude was, look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. You know, and I blamed her. That day, I got a different message. Mm-hmm. And I said, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study in theology, i missed the whole point. And I said, please give me an attitude like Christ toward her. In retrospect, it's the greatest prayer I ever prayed about my marriage because God changed my heart. Three questions made this practical. When I was willing to ask these three questions, my marriage began to change. Simple questions, honey, what can I do to help you? Second question, how can I make your life easier? Third question, how can I be a better husband? And when I was willing to ask those questions, she was willing to give me answers And <laughs> when I began to serve her, not overnight, but about three months later, she started asking me those three questions. Mm. What can I do to help you? How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better wife? And looking back on it, I didn't know anything about love languages in those days, but looking back on it, her answers to those questions were telling me her love language. hmm and when I started doing that, she began to feel love feelings toward me. And when she started giving me words of affirmation, which was my love language, I didn't know it, but it was, she started giving me words of affirmation, then my love tank began to fill up. So, you know, we've been we've been married now for over 60 years, 61, as a matter of fact. And my wife says she has no idea how that could be possible because she's only 49. But at any rate, I have a wonderful wife. Mm. I've said to her many times, you know, Carolyn, if every woman in the world was like you, there'd never be a divorce. Yeah. Mm. Why would a man leave a woman who's doing everything she can to help him? You know, and my goal has been to so serve her. When I'm gone, she'll never find another man to treat her the way I've treated her. Okay. (laughs) She's going to miss me when I'm gone. (laughs) And, you know, that. That's
0: what marriage is all about, Adam. Yeah. You know,
1: it's, it's it's two people loving each other and pouring into each other's lives.
0: Yeah. Well, my, my wife and I have only been married for about four years now, and uh, we're still learning that, <clears throat> and it's an international marriage. My wife is Brazilian, and oh. uh, you have a great audience in Brazil, by the way, so just to, hmm. I'm sure you already know that, but... Uh, the, the the there's obviously a lot of challenges. I can affirm that. But one of the things I think is so unique about your work in the love languages is your ability to help people navigate that. But there arises from some people this, this kind of presiding problem where they learn their own love language. And they're not seeking to selflessly serve their spouse in their love language. And they grow in resentment and say, well, he's not treating me the way I want to be loved or she's not serving me the way I want to be served. And, and that can be rather dangerous. You're
1: right. And they will say to their spouse, you're not speaking my language. You know, yeah, if you yeah. love me, you speak my language. And, and, and they really miss the whole point, just yep. like I was missing the whole point. The whole point of the love language is, is to discover your spouse's love language and reach out to them and speak love in their love language. God is the example. You know, the Bible says we love God because God first loved us. We just responded to his love and the emphasis really in the book. What I'm really trying to say is learn your spouse's love language and with God's help, choose to speak that love language on a regular basis. And what happens typically they're going to reciprocate. They're going to respond because love stimulates love. So, yeah, it's a you know, we are all selfish by nature. You know, and and there's a good thing to that, that we eat, right? We take care of ourselves. We get exercise and all those things. That's all good. But when our attitude in relationships is selfish, that is, I'm in this relationship for what I can get out of it. And if you don't meet my needs then I'm out of here, I mean, that's selfish living. That's the opposite of love. Love is I'm in this relationship to enrich your life. If you can tell me how I want to help you become the person that God wants you to become, Mm -hmm. And we choose either the attitude of love, which was the attitude of Christ, or we choose a selfish attitude. Two selfish people will not have a good marriage because they'll just criticize each other. Mm -hmm. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And the other thing, but two loving people will learn how to communicate love. And they, with God's help, they will speak the other person's language.
0: I have a question, and it's been one that's nagging at me as long as I've known your uh, your books and the five love languages and that whole series. Uh, we often speak that what comes natural to us is to love people in the way that we feel loved, and yet we often get mismatched. Why isn't that we just find the person that if we're loving people naturally the way that we want to feel loved, why don't we just attract the people that feel the same love language and then life would be easy?
1: Well, it would sound nice logical, right. <laughs> But well, you remember the old saying, opposites attract? Mm-hmm. It's not only in love languages. It's in many other languages. I think it's because we see in the other person things that we really wish were in our lives. You know, maybe they are an outgoing person. You know, they're just free and everybody just loves them. And maybe yep. we're kind of you know, inward turned and we think, man, I wish I could be more like that. And we're attracted to someone who has strengths or we have weaknesses. Uh, and, and there's a the good part to that. But yes, there was also a struggle to that. But understanding that God wants to use those differences, and the good news about love languages is you can learn to speak any one of these languages, even if you did not receive them as a child, and they're not your language. Now, if you did, for example, if physical touch is your language, and you were never touched growing up, you know, your parents never hugged you, never affirmed you, never give you positive touches, yeah, that'll be hard for you. But the good news is you can learn it. Just one step at a time, you can learn it. And the, it's like learning another language. You know, if you're going to learn another language, it, it takes some time and effort, but little by little, you learn how to speak that other language. And you can do that in speaking love languages as well.
0: Hmm. You mentioned parenting and childhood. What was your childhood like that influenced how you became a parent?
1: Well, I think, uh, uh, I didn't know a whole lot about parenting, to be honest with you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> just like I didn't know much about marriage when I got married. Uh, I mean, my parents were good parents, you know, and I grew up feeling loved. And, and you know, just listen, people had good relationships before I wrote love languages. I'm not, you know, I'm, no, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, because, but I think they stumbled upon how to love each other. And they stumbled upon how to love children. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot from my children. And I discuss that in the book. We often talk about the parental influence on children, but children also have an influence on parents. And one of the things I learned from my son was how to handle anger Mm. and how I learned it was he and I were yelling and screaming at each other. And I, one day asked myself, where did he learn that? And I realized he learned it from me because that's what I did. And I remember one night we got into an argument and we were just yelling and screaming at each other and saying hateful things in the middle of it. He was about 13 or 14. He just walked out the front door and slammed the door. Mm. And when the door slammed, I woke up and I said, Oh Lord, I thought I was further along than this yelling and screaming and saying hateful things to the son I love. And I just started weeping. I mean, I wept and wept and my wife came in and tried to console me. And she said, Gary, I heard the whole thing. He started that. He's got to learn how to respect you. You know, she tried to console me, but it's hard to console a sinner. <laughs> she finally left the room. I just got on my knees and poured my heart out to God. And I said, God, I've got to have help. I've got to learn how to do this. I cannot go on like this. And, you know, I'm so grateful God always forgives us. But when my son came back in, I don't know how long he was gone, but when he came back in that night, I said, Derek, could we talk a minute? And I apologized to him. I just poured my heart out. I said, Derek, a father should never talk to a son the way I talk to you. And I said, I said hateful things to you, and, and that's not the way I feel about you. I love you. I lost my temper, and I said all those things. And I said, I hope, I hope you can forgive me for the way I talk to you. And he said, Dad, that was not your fault. I started that. And he said, I was yelling at you. And I walked up the road and I asked God to forgive me for the way I talked to you. And I want to ask you to forgive me. And we, we hugged each other. and We both cried. And then I said, Derek, why don't we try to learn together how to handle anger? So the next time you feel angry you just say to me, Dad, I'm angry. Can we talk?
0: Mm. And
1: I'll listen to you. And if I'm angry with you, I'll say, Derek, I'm angry. Can we talk? And let's learn how to talk our way through our anger rather than yelling our way through anger. And that was a huge change in our relationship. And that's where together we learned how to listen to the other person, try to understand the other person's perspective and why they're angry and, and then affirm it and say, I can see why you'd be angry. Now, how can we handle this in the future? And uh, it was a huge, huge lesson that I learned from my son.
0: Throughout my years of ministry, obviously, marriage has been a place of a lot of conflict and a lot of disagreements and a lot of bitterness, and a lot of lifelong bitterness has come from that as well. I think, even more so, that I've noticed throughout the years is parents, um, even adult children uh, who have struggled with their parents, but now parents who have burned bridges with their children, now that as adults and now struggling to reshape those relationships, I think a lot of our listeners in that place, they, they wonder about if that can even be restored, especially now in these challenges that they have. You've certainly learned, not only with love languages, but with your own experiences, how to mend broken relationships. Can you talk to our listeners in that context that are really struggling with figuring out how this could actually, that, this could actually be restored, these relationships could be yeah. restorative?
1: Yeah, whether it's marriage or whether it's a parent-child relationship that is fractured, sometimes it feels hopeless. You know, I mean, you just feel like we don't know what else to do. I think it begins, and I think Jesus laid this principle down when he said, first get the the speck out of your, the, the plank out of your own eye before you try to straighten the other person out. And so one of the things I suggest is if you're in a troubled relationship, You just say to God, Lord, show me what I did wrong in this relationship. Now, I know the other person might be 95% of the problem. I understand (laughs) that. We can't confess somebody else's sins, but we can deal with our own. Remember, I said to a lady one time, I was sharing this concept, and she said, yeah, but Gary, what if he's really the problem? (laughs) And I said, okay, let's say he's 95% of the problem. That would only leave 5% for you. What I'm saying is you deal with your 5%. Ask God to show you where you failed. Confess it to God. Then go to them and say, I've been thinking about us, and I asked God to show me where I have been failing you, and he gave me a list of things here. And I've asked God to forgive me, and if you will allow me, I'd like to share these with you and ask you, if you can please forgive me for these failures. (sighs) I don't know if they'll forgive you or not. I don't know if they will even let you read the list, but I do know this. God will use that step to touch their hearts. Hmm. They're going to walk away and think, man, never heard this before. All I've ever heard is how bad I am. They actually came and apologized for something. See, God can work in their heart. Your action can touch their hearts. You know, we've always said you can't make another person change, and that's true. But you can influence another person. And the most powerful way to influence a person where there's a fractured relationship is to acknowledge your own failures and ask forgiveness, and then start speaking their love language as if you have opportunity. If a marriage, if they're still in the house and still there, start speaking their love language unconditionally no matter what they've done to you in the past, you won't feel like it. None of you won't feel like it, but you, you could just say, God, Romans chapter five and verse five, the love of God is poured in our hearts by the Holy spirit. And you say, Lord, I'm opening my heart. I want to be your agent for loving that person. So with whatever opportunity I have, give me the ability to speak their love language. And you start doing that to a spouse or to a child. If you have any access to the child uh, and, and you're having a positive influence, can't guarantee that they'll turn around, but I have seen many, many marriages saved and many parent-child, adult-child relationships restored when we take these steps. And so both of those are biblical steps, dealing with your own failures and then speaking love to the other person in a way that's meaningful to them. Hmm.
0: Normally, I would ask this question at the beginning of an interview, but I I saved it to the end because I wanted to hear your story. And uh, I wanted to know what prompted you to, to write your story. What prompted you to go back and kind of do this retrospective examination of the life lessons you've learned along the way?
1: Well, you know, I had thought about it earlier, but when I turned 80, I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to do this, I better do it while I still have a mind. <laughs> and so I started thinking on it really during the pandemic is when I wrote it. I had a little extra time. I wasn't traveling as much. And I thought, you know, what I'd like to do is leave something of what God has done in my life that might bring a challenge and help to other people who read it. And uh, and I and in the book, I encourage other people: if you're getting on up there in sixties and seventies and eighties, it's it's time, it's time for you to write your story. And you don't even have to have it published, but at least leave it to your family, so that your grandchildren and great grandchildren and great great grandchildren can learn something from your journey. Otherwise, you know, in a generation, nobody knows what you learned from God. Nobody knows what God did in your life. So to me, it was a desire to, to uh, let, show what God had done in my life uh, in, a, in a way to help others to learn some things that, that I learned.
0: Mm. And there's something else about writing a book. The person who writes the book always benefits the most from the book. Although your books have benefited a lot of people in tremendous ways and even saving lives and saving marriages and families. I'm curious, what did you what was the process of learning for you in writing this book?
1: Well, you know, I have, of course written a lot of other books before this. So this this one was easier than a lot of the books in the early stages because I never saw myself as a writer. I never took writing courses and all of that. I was deeply impacted by the example of of something that D.L. Moody said. He was the founder of Moody Bible Institute. He said to pastors, when you're preaching, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can understand them. And that made an impact in my life. And I thought, you know, if I ever write, I want to write in the common language. I don't want to use a lot of psychological jargon or even theological jargon that people don't understand. And so in this book, I tried to do the same thing I've done in all of my books. And that is write it so the common person can understand and can identify. And uh, that, that was my guiding line. Through the years, what I've done is take Thursday as a writing day. I've worked on the staff, the same church staff now for 50 years. And I've just officially retired. Uh, but they let me keep my office and let me keep my assistant. So I'm in the office <laughs> every day. Uh, uh, but I take Thursday as a writing day. And it takes a long time to write a book, just one day a week, but eventually you get it done. And uh, that's what happened with this book. And that's why, you know, a couple of years there in the pandemic, is, I worked on this, and then we released it uh, as the pandemic was beginning to lift uh, somewhat. So uh, that that was my journey in writing this book as well.
0: Mm. For any of our listeners who have uh, benefited from your books in the past, and there's many, not just the love language books, but many others who have really great and profound and important um, many of them have struggled and you have been such a blessing in their life. Could I ask you to to pray for them? Could I ask you to be a blessing again in, in a time of prayer to encourage them with your words to God that they would be blessed in, in their pursuit of being more like Christ and, as you mentioned, washing the feet, uh, serving as Christ served, loving others as Christ loved us. Could you just encourage them with a word of prayer?
1: Surely I'd be glad to. Father, you know those who will be listening as we've been talking, you know where they are, you know everything about them, and you know what they need most. I pray that your spirit will touch their spirits, open their hearts, open their eyes to what you want to do in their lives. And the things we've talked about or the books they read, grandfather, that they will come to experience everything that you have in mind for them. Keep their hearts. Draw them to yourself. Give them wisdom in all of their relationships, and give them wisdom as they seek to minister to others. I pray this for their good. I pray this for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen.
0: Amen. We've been talking with Dr. Gary Chapman about his latest book called Life Lessons and Love Languages, What I've Learned on My Unexpected Journey. A great little story that covers his life from childhood to the present, and all of the opportunities that he has been able to be used by God because he's been willing to listen to God and do what God was leading him to do. What a great story, and what a great time and conversation. Dr. Chapman, again, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us and our listeners, and hopefully if you ever come to New England, you'll give us a call. We'll we'll work together at hosting a great event as we seek to build lives together, build relationships together, We'd love to have you. If you ever, if you ever think of New England, remember and pray for us and pray for our listeners.
1: Well, thank you, Adam. It's uh, good chatting with you today. And uh, you know, if there, if there's a church in New England that has us, that can seat a thousand people and would be open to a Saturday conference. They can go to fivelovelanguages.com and get to click on events, and it gives you all the details of how that would be possible.
0: Well, Dr. Chapman, again, thank you so much. It really was a joy to talk to you. Um, I've always been blessed by your writing and encouraged by it and it's informed my marriage and we've certainly had a lot of challenges being uh, married with an international uh, marriage. Uh, So it's really influenced me and I can't thank you enough uh, for being a part of the many voices for that one message.
1: Well, thank you, Adam. God, God bless you as you continue to use your talents for him.